0: All right, let's turn, if you will, if you haven't already, turn to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. We have been looking at the greatest run on sentence in redemptive history here in verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians chapter 1. Um, I mean, you could look at this in one whole sitting. I wanted to kind of do a slightly deeper dive into these sections because there's a lot here. Uh, I hope it's been helpful. I hope it's been useful. But we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 14 this morning. And, but as I've done the previous two times, I will read the entire passage, verses 3 through 14. So uh, please give your attention as I read God's word. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And now our passage for this morning. In him, that is Christ, we have obtained an inheritance So again, last time we looked at verses seven through ten. In this, in which we that those verses, their focus on the work of the Son in our salvation, His work of redemption, in which He uh, was sent into this world. You know, this is the story of the Gospels. He was sent into this world on a divine rescue mission to redeem those whom the Father had chosen before the foundation of the world. The Father chose us. And then the Son redeems us. And he redeems us by his precious blood as we saw last time. By the blood of Christ. His precious blood. The blood that he shed on the cross. Not just any old time when he bled but specifically when he died the atoning death on the cross he purchased our redemption. And that word there again carries that notion of uh, rescuing us. Of buying us out of slavery. Of buying us out of our, our blindness out of our death to our sins and trespasses. He buys us back. And he then repurposes us, if you will, according to the purpose of his will which he set forth in Christ. So the Father's got a plan going on here. And that plan for the fullness of time, that phrase we've seen in Galatians when Paul says that in the fullness of time Christ came forth, born of a woman, born under the law. Again, the fullness of time. When the right Time and that plan is to unite all things in Christ, to sum up all things under the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ and all things, right? Things in heaven, things on the earth. That's just a way of encompassing everything in creation. So that was last time. Now, as we look at verses 11 through 14 here, we're going to see the final person of the Trinity here, the Holy Spirit, and what his role is. Okay? Um, and, uh, a man I've referenced uh, several times since I've been here, a man by the name of Jay Gresham Machen wrote a book. No, sorry, wrong guy. Back that up. He did write a book. He wrote a lot of books, okay? But this is not the book I'm referring to, so correction. Uh, a man named Charles Murray, a man named Charles Murray wrote a book called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. And in that book, uh, it's really the twofold work of, of the Son of, of the Son of God, in which He accomplishes redemption, and that that's that's what we call um, you know. There's a fancy phrase for it. It's called the Historia Salutis, or the the history of salvation. It's it's a historical moment in time in which Christ accomplishes redemption. Now that redemption then has to be applied to us, and it's applied to us by the Holy Spirit. Who takes the work of Christ and applies it to each and every one whom the Father has chosen before the foundation of the world. So you've got redemption accomplished, then redemption applied. And that's what you're seeing here in these verses here. Redemption was accomplished. We saw that in verses 7 through 10. Here we're going to see redemption applied. And Paul here, this is, you know, this is one of those passages that kind of talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We, you know, the Holy Spirit is not you know, mentioned a lot in the sense of that you get detailed information on his ministry, but there are several key passages that really go into depth on his ministry. You see that in John chapters 14, 15, and 16, how the Spirit will come. Jesus talks about the promised helper to come. You see this in Romans 8 where Paul talks about the work of the Spirit in our adoption, in, our, uh, in preserving us, in... Um, uh, glorifying us and all these things. And here, in uh, verses 11 through 13, uh, 14, you see the Holy Spirit here, his work as a guarantee, his work as sealing the promises of God to us. So you're going to see here in this passage uh, three kind of uh, overarching themes. You're going to see the, the, the theme of inheritance. You're going to see the theme of predestination again. Uh, and then you're going to see the, the theme of this sealing work of the Holy Spirit Um, and that's um, what we got in store for us here in verses 11 through 14. So uh, just an overarching theme to connect it all. Um, Again this whole passage here is a praise statement to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So again that is the purpose of all of this. Paul is not teaching this just so that we know these things. It's important that we know these things but now It has to evoke that sense of praise and worship for everything God has done for us. If that that response does not come from us, then we do not understand everything that God has done for us. And we need to be reminded of it so that this this, uh, response of praise comes out. That's how he begins This passage, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's how he ends this passage, to the praise of his glory. So the theme for this morning is the Father is to be praised and worshipped because he has sealed us by the Spirit for our eternal inheritance in Christ. The Spirit seals the promises to us that we have by our union with Christ. So first, we're going to look at verse really just the first half of verse 11, uh, where we have obtained an inheritance. So Paul continues this opening statement of praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ as he moves on now to the idea of inheritance, the idea of inheritance, where he says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Now, it's interesting because I believe the uh, the phrase inheritance has been used before. Um, or I know it's used later. And, and the word there in verse 11 is different than the one you see in verse 14. The word in verse 11 really means to be appointed by lot. Okay, by lot. You mean by lot, uh, Abraham's nephew? No, no, no. By lot as in casting lots. Okay? Uh, think of how the land was apportioned out to the the nation of Israel. Uh, If you want, you can. You can turn to the book of Numbers. In chapter 26 of Numbers. So in chapter 26 of the book of numbers it's you know genesis exodus leviticus numbers starting in verse 52 here the lord speaks to moses saying among these among these the land that is the promised land shall be divided so the tribes of israel shall be divided for inheritance according to the number of names To a large tribe, you shall give a large inheritance. To a small tribe, you shall give a small inheritance. Every tribe shall be given its inheritance in proportion to its list. But the land shall be divided by lot, according to the names of the tribes of the fathers they shall inherit. Their inheritance shall be divided according to lot, between the larger and the smaller. Now you're like, well, that seems weird, isn't, you know... If you kind of roll dice or whatever, isn't that kind of random? Well, yet yeah, to us it's random, but to the Lord it is not. Um, I'm trying to remember that verse. I know it's in Proverbs sixteen. Yes, yeah, Proverbs sixteen thirty three. The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. All right. So the lot is just the means by which God. Assigns the land as an inheritance to his people. Okay? There's no randomness here. There's no chance involved here. The only randomness and chance is the fact that our finitude limits our understanding of how God does these things. But God apportions the land by lot. And that's what this verse or this word here, inheritance, means. It says that we have obtained sort of this inheritance by lot. It has been given to us by lot. Now, I'm going to turn grammar nerd a little bit here, okay? That word there, inheritance, obtained in inheritance, it's really one word in the Greek, is in what we call the passive voice. And I may have mentioned this before, the difference between the active voice and the passive voice. In the active voice, the subject is the one performing the action. In the passive voice, the subject is the one receiving the action, okay? I threw the ball or I, I hit the ball, okay? So I'm playing baseball, I hit the ball. I'm the subject, I'm performing the action on the ball, right? Now, if I'm playing baseball and someone throws the ball to me and I, I'm not paying attention, the ball hit me, okay? I am the subject, but I am receiving the action. The ball is hitting me. In other words, I have no agency in the ball hitting me. I'm just passive, receiving this action. It's the same thing here. This, this inheritance is not something... We earn it is something that is given to us. We have obtained it, it has been apportioned to us. Who is the subject that is doing the action? It is God. Who is the one receiving the action? We are. We are passive in this. So we have been appointed by Lot, or we have obtained by Lot this inheritance. As we saw, the land of Canaan was given to the people as an inheritance. That was what God had promised them. I will give this land to you. They didn't deserve it. They didn't earn it. God went forward, right? And when Joshua goes and conquers the land, it's not Joshua that's conquering the land. It is the Lord who goes in and strikes the fear of him in the people that are there. right? When he approaches the gates of Jericho and they send the spies out, what does Rahab say? The fear of the Lord has struck these people here. We are in fear of you, right? I mean, they, all they've done is just, they've just kind of walked up to the to the gates of Jericho. They haven't even done anything yet. And the Lord has already put into their hearts the fear of him, right? Earlier, before they even get to Jericho, uh, Joshua has an encounter with this figure, the, uh, the commander of the Lord's army. And Joshua asks, are you for us or against us? And he's like, none of the above. He's like, you are for me, <laughs> right? I, I'm not, I don't work for you, you are working for me. I will go before you, and I will put the fear of the Lord in all of the enemies of the Lord in this nation. And whenever they had great victory, it was because the Lord provided the victory. Whenever they had great defeat, it was because they had sinned, and the Lord withheld victory from them. So this land was given to them as an inheritance, a gracious gift of God to Israel by virtue of the promise he made to Abraham. When we get there in Genesis 12, that's one of the promises that God says. He says, I will give this land to your offspring after you. So this idea of inheritance. God promised the land and he kept his promise. God gave them the land as an inheritance. They obtained it by lot. They obtained it because God promised it and he keeps his promises. Now as the land was to Israel their inheritance, the greater redemptive historical reality here is that this points to our internal inheritance that is promised to those who are in Christ. So I'm going to take a few moments here to look at some verses, Matthew 5, verse 5, if you're familiar with the Gospel of Matthew, that is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. And in Matthew 5, verse 5, Jesus is pronouncing, well, he's pronouncing blessings on people who don't deserve them, but he's also pronouncing blessings on those whom you wouldn't expect blessing to be pronounced upon. I think that sentence makes sense. I think it's properly said. (laughs) He pronounces blessings on those you wouldn't expect to be blessed, okay? The poor. The meek, those who mourn, those who hunger and thirst, those who are merciful, those who are persecuted, those who are peacemakers, those who are pure in heart, he pronounces blessings upon them. And in verse 5, he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The whole earth is, the, in a sense, the inheritance of the people of God. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, this idea of inheritance. Now, this is Paul's great chapter on the resurrection. Uh, Before we got into Ephesians, we were in 1 Corinthians, so this is relatively fresh. I think this was late last year we looked at this passage. And he's about to tell them a mystery and he's talking about the resurrection, and he's making the point to people who are misunderstanding the resurrection, who thought that, well, Christ was raised from the dead, but we, there's no physical resurrection for, for us. And Paul says, look, if there's, if there's no resurrection for us, then Christ is not raised. He's, he's making this connection that, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foreshadow, is the first fruits of our resurrection. If he was raised from the dead, then we too will be raised from the dead. Then at the end of this whole passage, he makes this point. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now, I only mention this because the kingdom of God is their reference as an inheritance. Right? It's just an inheritance that goes to those who are... not flesh and blood those who are not perishable it's the imperishable it's the spiritual in other words those again who are in Christ will inherit the kingdom of God if you remember in galatians sorry we went from 1 Corinthians to galatians and then to ephesians but in galatians 3 again paul is talking here about the law and the promise and he uses a reference to the inheritance that was given to Abraham In Galatians 3, verse 18. It's like, on what was the promise made? What was the basis of the promise that God made to Abraham? Was it through works? Or was it through promise? And he says in verse 18, "...for if the inheritance, the land that was promised to Abraham, comes by the law, it is no longer a promise." But God gave it to Abraham by promise, by grace through faith. The inheritance of the land was granted to Abraham, not on the basis of his obedience, but on the basis of his faith, and on the basis of God's promise to him, it was given to him. Two more passages. One I'm just going to look at briefly, the other one I'm going to look at a little more closely. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 I've made reference to this passage in other contexts. But in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, he opens his letter very similarly to the way that Paul opens Ephesians. Where he says there in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this statement of praise coming to, going up to God because of what he has done. According to his great mercy, he has caused us. He has made us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What's the purpose of that? To an inheritance. So he, God the Father causes us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. It is the ground of our being born again. And we are then caused to be born again for the purpose of an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Those are, those are words that speak of nothing in this world, right? The inheritance that is undefiled, incorruptible, and unfading is, does not speak to anything in the physical world that we see now or as we've been looking at in Ecclesiastes with the men. It, is not, it does not pertain to anything under the sun. This is an eternal inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Last verse, Hebrews nine. Thank you for indulging me on this. Hebrews nine, verse fifteen. Again, this is a passage I've I I've preached through this. I've referenced this many times, and here again, the author is speaking about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which is far better than any of the Levitical sacrifices. And he makes his conclusion, because the the argument is really in verses 11 through 14. And he concludes it in verse 15. Therefore, he, that is Jesus, he is the mediator, he is the go-between of a new covenant. One that is far better than the old covenant. So that those who are called, that is us, the church, the people of God, may receive What? the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So because Jesus Christ, his death, redeems those who made sins that were according to the first covenant. In other words, we broke the law. And then Jesus redeems us by his death so that we can receive the promised eternal inheritance. So this idea of inheritance uh, is, is the reality that Paul is referring to here in Ephesians chapter 1. This is what we have obtained in Christ. Again, as, as he did before, as we saw last time in verse 7, he front loads this notion of union with Christ in him. It is because of our union with Christ we have obtained this inheritance. Now, this phrase, right, obtained an inheritance, as I said, really the word means to appoint by lot. There's a sense in which you can understand this phrase, this first half of the verse, to say that we are those that have been obtained as an inheritance for God. There's a sense in which Paul might also be saying that we have been obtained as an inheritance by God. And, And you're like, well, where do you get that? Well, Deuteronomy 4, verse 20 mentions that, where there God says to the people, but the Lord, Moses says to the people, but the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt to be a people for his, of his own inheritance as you are this day. Or uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 9, it's another place where he says this, But the Lord's portion, his inheritance, his lot, is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. So which is it? Is it we have obtained an inheritance or we have been obtained as an inheritance? Um, one, one, one translation, the New Living Translation, I think, picks up this theme. Uh, New Living Translation, if you're not aware, is a, um, it's a modern translation. I think it came out in the 90s or so. I know, modern, that's like 30-some-odd years, but okay, <laughs> relatively modern. Okay. It came out in the 90s or so. It is they, it, The phrase they use to describe it is called dynamic equivalence. You're like, well, what does that mean? Well, it means that instead of trying to translate as closely as possible word for word, they are trying to translate the concepts, right? So whatever the original Greek or Hebrew says, they try to reword that in a way that we would understand. So... Now, as, as a translation philosophy, I don't particularly um, gravitate towards that. I think I think there's some use in comparing uh, translations to one another, but as a, for for personal study, I would prefer a more word-for-word translation. I want to see what I want to see as closely as possible in English what the words were in Hebrew or Greek. But there's some benefit to looking at other translations. And New Living Translation picks up this theme where it translates verse 11 as follows. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ. So there, it's, it's, instead of saying in him, it is expanding that to mean we are united with Christ. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's not what the text says. So it, this is more interpretive, not, not translative. Okay? Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance. And then there was a note That says, or you could say, we have become God's inheritance. So they understand that the verse can mean, that phrase can be understood both ways. Now, either way, I prefer the obtained an inheritance translation. But either way, the purpose is to draw our attention to, the the, again, the proper response of the believer toward God, which is praise and worship. As I said last time, Doctrine leads to doxology. Learning these truths, then, is to evoke a a response of praise to God. We who deserve what? We don't deserve an inheritance. What do we deserve? Wrath, judgment, right? We deserve justice at God's hands. We have been given an inheritance. And it's not because we're worthy. It is because... God promises the, this inheritance to us in Christ. As Paul says in other places, we are co-heirs with Christ. Whatever Christ has received, we receive by faith and by union in him and is all by grace and love. All right, next point. So we saw that we've, been, we've obtained an inheritance. Now we're going to see that we're predestined according to his purpose It's the last half of verse 11 going into verse 12. So in him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, that is the Father, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that, purpose, that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So here Paul again brings up the idea of predestination. We saw it earlier in verse 5 where the Father predestines us for adoption. Here now we see that we are predestined according to the purpose, His purpose, of the one who works all things according to His will. So we are predestined, again, that uh, initially to adoption, that glorious do- uh, doctrine of adoption by which God takes us as His sons and daughters by virtue of our union with Christ. We are brought into the family We are given all the privileges that are are given to Christ as the the proper Son of God. We are given those privileges and and all the reward, again, by union. But here in verse 11, the notion of predestination is related to our inheritance. We were chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son to receive our inheritance, and this was predestined, decided beforehand, foreordained marked out ahead of time, if you will. And this predestination is according to God's purpose. That is, That word there means a predetermined plan. Again, this is not something that is a response to something God saw. He's not like correcting in mid-course. This is always part of the plan, this redemption that we have in Christ, and this, in, in this, this uh, purpose that he has. God leaves nothing Chance. In fact, I was listening this morning to uh, R.C. Sproul, and he was talking about his, his famous story about the maverick molecule. You know, if you've heard that story before, if God is sovereign, there are no maverick molecules. There's nothing that is outside of the sphere of his control. If there is, then he's not sovereign. And if he's not sovereign, he's not God. Everything is within the sphere of his sovereignty. And everything is, goes according to his plan. There is nothing left to chance. Just look over at verse 11 of chapter 3, where he says this, the mystery that he reveals, and we'll get there, that he made known, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, eternal purpose, the eternal predetermined plan that finds its fruition, that finds its completion and its consummation in Christ. It is realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. God leaves nothing to chance. Now, this plan incorporates more than just our inheritance. Our inheritance is part of this plan. This plan incorporates all things, right? Look at the last half of verse 11. The purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So you got several things there. That word works, in uh, geo means that he is working this according to the inherent power and ability that God has as the sovereign. And all things, you know, in, in, in Greek it's tapanta, it means everything, right? All the things. You know, it, none of the things are excluded, right? So all things means what? All things, okay, <laughs> right? That, that, that's where I kind of give you the answer to the question before I even ask it. All things. Again, that ma- no maverick molecules, and everything works according to his will, his wishes, his desires. Now, some people are put off that all things are governed by God. If you've got a hymnal in front of you, I'm going to turn to Lord's Day 10 in the back in the Heidelberg. that's on page 864 in the back of the hymnal, Lord's Day 10. There's two questions there. Again, as Heidelberg often does, uh, it asks a question about the doctrine, and then it says, what does it profit us to know this doctrine? Okay, so how does it comfort you? What is it, what is it, how does it work in your life? What, how does it apply to you? How does it benefit you? Okay. So in Lord's Day ten verse, verse uh, question twenty seven, what do you understand by the providence of God? Because that's what we're talking about. When God governs all things according to the purpose of His will, we are talking about providence. We are talking about how He governs things. That's what providence means. And here, what we understand is the Almighty, everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by His hand, He still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures. And so governs them, that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruit and years meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed, what? All things, <laughs> tapanta, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. And I love the way the catechism puts it there. It, it, it contrasts these things, herbs and grass, rain and drought, I mean seasons crops fruitful barren years meat and drink health and sickness riches and poverty all things in case uh, the the author of the catechism left out anything he says all things right everything is not by chance but comes by his fatherly and i love that language fatherly because that denotes tenderness and 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 love not sort of like you know grumpy curmudgeonly you know god that you see in some some people think of god and then 28 what does it profit us to know that God created and by his providence upholds all things? Well, that we may be patient in adversity. So when bad things happen, we don't say, oh, that's that's awful, that's some bad luck. No, God brought that trial into your life. Right? And the trials have the purpose of eventually maturing us in our faith. So we can be patient in adversity. We can be thankful. In prosperity, Why? Because God brought the prosperous. He, he brings the fruitful and the barren years. He brings riches and poverty. And for what is future? Have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love. Again, God's governing all things by his Father in the hand. you think he's going to let anything take his elect out of his hand? No, of course not since all creatures are so in his hand and without his will they cannot so much as move. So we teach that God's sovereignty, God's plan covers all things. And again, some people are put off by this. Some people say that removes human agency. Well, they are worshipping at the altar of human autonomy if they say that. right? They want to be autonomous over their lives and they don't like the idea that God has a plan that incorporates them as well. Well, I don't know what else to tell you. (laughs) You know, I mean, God's plan is God's plan. And you are part of that. You are not the maverick molecule, okay? Sorry to say that. And again, the purpose of all this, as we've seen before, is to reverberate or redound to his glory, who works all things according to the counsel of will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of, of his glory, he's he's references several times. Look at verse six to the praise of his glorious grace, and verse fourteen to the praise of his glory. All these things Paul is teaching here are to redound to the praise of God's glory. Now, in verse twelve, there's an interesting thing going on here because if you look at verse twelve, and we're going to look at verse thirteen in a moment, there's a contrast where Paul says so that we who are the first to hope in Christ, and then he says, in him you also, verse 13, um, some see this, and I, I think this this is, there, this is merited, I think some see this where Paul says, we who are the first to hope in Christ, is probably a reference to Jewish Christians. Because he's going to say we, and then he's, in a moment he's going to say you, and then as we're going to see later on in the book of Ephesians, Paul is very eager to make sure that this mystery, he says this in chapter three, verse six. This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs with, uh, with uh, and members, uh, fellow heirs and members of the same body, the body of Christ, the people of God, and are partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In chapter two, he talks about how uh, Christ has broken down the separating uh, the wall that separates Jew and Gentile and brings them together into one new man. So here Paul is saying in verse 12, we who are the first to hope in Christ, Jewish Christians, right? Because when Paul preached the gospel, where did he go to first? Well, he went to the Jewish synagogues first and, and proclaimed the gospel to them. And when you know, and some would believe, many would reject, and when they were rejected, then he would turn and go to the Gentiles. That's how he says it in, verse, or sorry, in the book of Romans, where he says, the gospel is the power of God to salvation to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. In other words, it's, it's the power of God to salvation for all people. God has ordained that all that will take place, he, or I should say he has ordained all that will take place, and that includes the goal of an inheritance that is being obtained by those whom the Father has chosen and whom the Son has redeemed. And now finally, let's look at verses 13 and 14. As we see here, sealed with the Spirit. Again, in him union with Christ, you also, speaking now to Gentiles, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. There are two words there that really govern these verses, that's sealed and guaranteed, so he concludes this glorious passage with yet one more glorious truth, and that is believers are sealed with the Holy Spirit in Christ. As I mentioned earlier, the you in verse 13 is a contrast to the we in verse 12, so most likely referring to the Gentiles. And just as Christian Jews were the first to hope in Christ, Gentiles, as Paul says, when they heard the word of truth, what is the word of truth? The gospel of your salvation. And believed, they were sealed. So, note that even though God ordains all things that will come to pass, God also uh, ordains the means by which those ends will come to pass. Right? God has chosen for an inheritance. How is that worked out? It is worked out through the preaching of the gospel. People hear it, they believe it, they are brought into union with Christ, and they are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Now what Paul is saying here is that when one is born again that is converted, he is sealed. That word there, uh, the seal, we've looked at this before. It carries the idea of protection and authentication. Okay, If you are sealed, you are protected. You are covered. The promises are uh, given to you, and they are um, sort of sealed as in a vault. It also contains the idea of authentication. Okay. in chapter four, verse thirty. There Paul says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed. That is guaranteed, protected, approved for the day of redemption. I do want to look at one passage if you look at Second Corinthians, please. Second Corinthians chapter one. I may have mentioned this before. 2 Corinthians is a book, <laughs> you know, oddly enough, it doesn't, uh, you know, there it doesn't contain like some of the great mountain peaks that you see in other books. But there's so many verses in 2 Corinthians that I that I refer to because they're so good, and this is one of them. Uh, in chapter one of 2nd Corinthians, verse 19 and following. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you. That is, Sylvanus and Timothy and I was not yes and no. See, Paul here is talking about, he is kind of, he is combating the notion that the Corinthians had that, oh, Paul promises things, but he doesn't keep his promises, right? He said he was going to come and he didn't show up. Well, it's like, okay, no. See, the the Christ we proclaim is not yes and no. But in him, it is always yes. I love this verse, verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. You get that? All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Eternal life, yes in Christ. Redemption, yes in Christ. Glorification, yes in Christ. All of the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That is why it is through Christ that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Verse 21, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Sounds exactly what, like Paul is saying in Ephesians 1. We have been sealed. We have been guaranteed. I think of Revelation 7 where it talks about how the saints of God are sealed by Christ. He says, put your seal, put the mark on them. They are mine. So again, this seal contains or carries the idea mainly of protection, but it can also mean authentication. Right? Jesus Christ said that God has put His seal on me, His seal of approval. The Holy Spirit, in a sense, is the mark of God's ownership of our lives. Okay, And then He goes on, He says, well, how secure is our salvation? Verse 14, the Holy Spirit who seals us is the guarantee of our inheritance. The Holy Spirit not only seals these promises to us, but is given as the guarantee. You're like, okay, in other, that word there, we use it in our language to speak of a down payment, right? A, a, uh, a, a, an earnest, if you will, okay? This is the language of like when you buy a house, right? You put a down payment on it. What does a down payment signify? I intend to buy this house, right? If you put a down payment on anything, I intend to buy whatever it is I'm putting the down payment on. When God gives us the Holy Spirit as a down payment, he is saying, I intend to glorify these people and give them an inheritance. In my promises, I'm going to give them my spirit. That is how serious I am, the Father says. On them receiving the promised inheritance, I give them my spirit as a guarantee. And again, as before, this is all to the praise of his glory. So, as we bring this to a close, the glory of Christ in the life of the church is first seen in the work of the triune God in our salvation. Father elects and chooses us, the Son redeems us, and the Spirit seals us or preserves us. Right, The work that God began in us, as Paul says in Philippians 1, He will finish. Began in eternity past, finished when Christ returns. This is a plan set forth in eternity past. Now this must be divine work of the Triune God. As we're going to see when we get to chapter 2. It has to be a work of the triune God. Why? Because we are dead in our sins and trespasses. We are dead in the corruption that we inherit from Adam. By our union with Adam, we are corrupt. And then, birth, we require a new birth. We require a salvation that is a divine work and is a divine work from beginning to end. There's no part of us that merits or contributes to our salvation. But for us, then, what we can take home from this is that our salvation is secure, as I said. It, how's, how secure is it? Well, you've got the Holy Spirit as the guarantee. Right? The Holy Spirit guarantees his salvation to us because the Holy Spirit applies to us all of the saving work that Christ has, re, has accomplished for us. Again, redemption accomplished is also applied. The Holy Spirit works to make sure that those whom the Father chose and the Son redeemed are finally and fully saved. That is the work of the Spirit. And the good news is that uh, the good news of the Gospel, which includes election, redemption, preservation, again evokes this response of praise to God who works all things according to His will to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glorious grace. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Next time, Lord willing, on the 16th. Unless the Lord calls us home, we're going to look at verses 15 through 23. So.